Imagine with me for a few moments a hypothetical scenario. You are 40 years old and you've lived in Washington, D.C. your entire life. You were born there, you grew up there, that's the only city you've ever been part of or the only area you've ever lived in. It's what you've always known. You have a business in Washington, D.C. It took you 20 years to, to get it started and up and going and sustaining itself. You have a family that lives there with you in Washington, D.C. You have kids that are involved in good schools and they are part of the community. You have friends and family members nearby. You also have worked hard to get to know your neighbors that you live nearby and create a safe, welcoming community that your family enjoys and that other people enjoy as well. But throughout your life, even though your grandpa and grandpa have since, your grandpa and grandma have since passed away, you remember the stories they used to tell you about where they lived, not in Washington, D.C., but they lived in Miami, Florida, a thousand miles away south. Granddad and grandma talked about the, the amazing greenery that was all around. Everything was always beautiful and green. You could smell the ocean air from time to time. There were lots of fun things to do in a city like that with sports and a zoo and delicious food to enjoy. But most of all, they talked about the amazing church that they were part of, that their ancestors had built and that they went and worshipped at every Sunday. For years, Grandma and Grandpa talked about how great it would be back to move back to Miami. They talked about how great it would be to move back to Miami someday. They talked about how they never wanted to leave, but they were forced to leave because a new president moved them from Miami, Florida and took them to Washington, D.C. against their will. Grandma and Grandpa have since passed away, but you still have a lot of those memories of what they would describe. But one year a new president comes into power in Washington, D.C., and he tells everyone in your family that they can return back to Miami. And not only can your family and your family members return in Miami, this new president is going to give you all of the, the precious things that was taken from your family years ago. He's going to provide finances for you to go to Miami, and he's going to give you military escort and support for your thousand-mile trip. To this you have decided, you have to decide how to respond. You've never lived in that land. Do you really want to go there? You like where you live now in Washington. You maybe don't want to leave. And you're not sure you even should return. This was the scenario that Jews probably felt when they were given permission by Cyrus in Babylon, now Persia, to return back to Judah. It would have been a four-month journey covering about a thousand miles. And at this point in time, as we read in Ezra chapter 1, it's been 70 years that Jews have been in exile in Babylon. Everyone that once lived in Judah has probably now passed away. But some Jews believed it was God's will for them to return to Judah. And in that belief, they knew that there would be some circumstances. They believed it was God's will for them to return, and they were quickly going to learn that following God's will would be a difficult journey. Following God's will is going to require money, and following God's will required support from that king. So today we're in chapter 1 of the book of Ezra, 
And we're learning about this goal described for us about people returning to their land to rebuild their temple. Last week we read about the decree of Cyrus, and this week we're looking at the decision of these people to return. And we're kind of transitioning from those first four verses described the king's oral proclamation, and now we're reading the story of the people getting ready to return to the land. And as we read about this beginning of their return to the land, we're going to see the response of the volunteers that want to go, the response of the supporters that don't go but provide help, and the response of the king in what he does. But first we read about the response of the volunteers in verse 5. Ezra writes for us, Then the heads of the fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. That word then at the very beginning of verse 5 is telling us what happens as a result of Cyrus's decree saying that the Jews could return back to their land. And we read about these people that begin to, to prepare for the journey. And we read that there are religious leaders, there are priests and Levites that step up and get ready to go. And then they're heads of two of the tribes of Israel. Benjamin and Judah are the two tribes and their leaders prepare to go as well. Now we only have two of the 12 tribes of Israel described here because you might be familiar with what happened before this earlier in the Old Testament. In 931 BC, Solomon's son Rehoboam became king and he makes some foolish decisions and as a result of that, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel kind of defect and they go off to the north. They make their own capital in the city of Assyria and though, uh, some, I'm sorry, capital of Samaria. And those 10 tribes eventually get conquered by the nation of Assyria and they kind of disappear from history. Later on, Babylon conquers Assyria, and then Babylon comes to Judah and conquers those people and takes them back to Babylon. So here we read about just two of the tribes that are left, Judah and Benjamin, as they prepare to return to the land. And we're going to learn there's about 50,000 of them that want to go back to Judah. So the people is described for us, and then we have the pursuit of these people. It says in verse 5, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. This stirring of the Lord has already happened in chapter 1, verse 1, describing King Cyrus and how God stirs up his heart to let the Jews return. Now God is working in the hearts of his people to stir up them and, and cause them to want to return to their land. But it would have been a big deal for them to return to Jerusalem, to Judah at this time. For Jews, leaving Babylon would be very difficult because of the comfort in the city that they experienced. They'd lived there their whole life. They had friends and businesses. Also, the community that they probably experienced with other Jews there or Gentiles and pagans. It was hard for them to leave because of commerce. They could have started their own businesses and have businesses up and running or even contracts that required years for them to fulfill. It was hard for them to just decide immediately to go back to Judah. 
And just as for the Jews, leaving Babylon would be difficult, for the Jews returning to Judah would be difficult because of the poor state of the land. For 70 years, the land hadn't been cultivated. Imagine how bad a farmland would look after 70 years of not being taken care of. The state of the city was also a problem. The city of Jerusalem had no walls, no temple. It was pretty much leveled. And there was no economy for them to return to because Nebuchadnezzar had pretty much taken everybody to Babylon and left just a couple of people there. This was not a step out in faith and God will make you prosperous trip. This is a, you're going to step out in faith for poverty and experience poverty trip. But here in verse 5, as these people get ready to return to the land, we learn that doing God's will can be difficult. Deciding to leave Babylon and go to Judah was a difficult decision. But there were almost 50,000 people that believed it was God's will for them to return to the land. Their zeal for God was stronger than their current comfort in Babylon. They had a thirst for God and God's glory that couldn't be quenched by difficult circumstances. And see, sometimes when we learn God's will or discern God's will for our lives, it's going to be difficult for us too. In a book I read about the book of Nehemiah years ago, it says God's work in our lives isn't about painting and scrubbing. It's about reconstruction from the ground up, transformation and radical renovation. To build a tall building, you first have to dig a deep foundation. And sometimes if, if we're going to follow God, we're going to have to do difficult things as he gets us ready and prepares us for what's ahead. If we're not growing in our faith, we're either in the wrong place or maybe we have the wrong attitude about the place that we are in. God's always going to be stretching us and deepening us, whether it's health issues, maybe we didn't expect to experience, some family problems that we're learning to navigate, job uncertainties that cause us anxiety. When we follow God's will, it might be difficult for us. So in verse 5, we read about the men and women that are returning to the land, and in verse 6, we learn about the means that is provided for them to return. Verse 6 says, All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with good, goods, with cattle, with valuables, aside from all that was given as a free will offering. Now here in verse 6, we read about the people providing the support here. It says, All those about them. It's describing the community of people around the Jews that are going to help the Jews go back to the land. It was a similar thing that Cyrus had said in verse 3 where he says, Whoever there is among you of all his people. So he's talking to the Jews, but also talking to everyone around them to provide them support for their return trip back. The message, which is a paraphrase in the Bible, says their neighbors rallied behind them in support. And we learn about that support there in verse 6. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, gold, goods, cattle, and valuables that was given as a free will offering. Those are broad categories, and there's a lot of stuff described there that would make traveling back to Jude, Judah 
a lot harder because they have more stuff to take with them, more things to keep track of and all of that. But those were important things because it provided food for the people to eat, goods for them to trade, as well as sacrifices to offer once they got to the land. And Ezra calls it here a, a free will offering there at the end of verse 6. And that idea of a free will offering and giving is strong throughout the book of Ezra. It's mentioned in chapter 1, verse 4, here in verse 6, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 8. All describe giving of the people towards the temple and towards the rebuilding of the city and the temple. See, here we see that doing God's will is going to be difficult, and doing God's will requires giving. And I know sometimes it's hard to talk about giving, but in the book of Ezra, there's a lot of giving described. And the book of Ezra makes it clear that God's work could not be done without God's people giving to God's work. Right? The temple could only be rebuilt if the people were giving to the project. And giving was not something they would have been new to learning about. From the Old Testament law, they were told to give, and they were told to give many gifts. They were supposed to give a, a gift to the priests to provide for the priests. They were supposed to give a, a gift to the temple to take care of the temple. If they owned businesses, they were told to give to the poor by not farming the edges of their land so the poor could farm that for themselves. If there were loose things that fell while they were farming, they left that for the poor to come by and pick up. We read about in the book of Ruth. And not just giving to the temple, but the people would go to Jerusalem to offer additional gifts and tithes. They would go at least twice a year for Passover and Pentecost, where they would spend time and money traveling to Jerusalem. They'd spend time in Jerusalem purchasing sacrifices and making those sacrifices to God. When you add all those things up, a Jew Jewish person that followed the law would give anywhere from 32 to 40% of his or her income to God's work in Jerusalem. So how does that giving of the Old Testament compare to the American church and what we as Christians give to our church? Christianity Today once cited a couple studies that surveyed evangelical Christians about their giving to the local church. And they found this, 26% of evangelical Christians give nothing to the church. 42% of evangelicals give less than 2%. 23% of evangelicals give between 2% and 8% to the local church. And 10% of evangelicals give more than 8%. Lee Eklov, who was a pastor in Illinois for a long time, says when people give offering, offering envelopes don't just carry checks, they also carry faith and sacrifice for Jesus' sake. And if our giving to the church resembles our faith and sacrifice as Americans and the American church, we don't have a whole lot of faith or sacrifice if those stats are accurate. Chip Ingram says in his book, The Invisible War, most Christians are much more committed to giving a waitress 15% tip after a meal than giving to God a tenth of their income after he saved them from eternal despair. See, if we're committed to God's work in the local church, we should be giving to the local church to do God's work. 
The folks that work at Grant PUD are very nice, but if we don't pay our electric bill, they'll turn the electricity off, right? Some of us have experienced that personally. Or the young men that come plow the parking lot for us when it snows, if we don't pay them their invoice for January when they do that, if it snows again in March, they might not come back. See, giving is not about just giving your money to God. Giving is about giving God's money back to him. It's an act of worship where we tangibly and physically express our worship to God by giving to him. It's a way we, we declare and remind ourselves that everything we have belongs to God. And it's, it's not about what we give to him. It all belongs to him. It's more a matter of what are we going to keep for ourselves? So doing God's will sometimes requires giving, as we learn here. We've seen the response of the volunteers and the supporters. Next, we see the response of King Cyrus. Again, and what he does to support these people. Verse 7 and 8 read, Also King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithredath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Shezbazer, the prince of Judah. Now, where did these items come from that Nebuchadnezzar all of a sudden has access to? See, it was a common practice among conquering kings, especially the Assyrians and the Babylonians. We have their records that they have kept where when they would conquer a certain city or group of people or a country, they would take careful inventory of all the sacred objects they seized. And they would always look for some special sacred objects, usually the, the image of that god of the people. And they wanted that image of that god to take to their god and keep it with all of their God as a sign that they had conquered that God. But that was a problem when Nebuchadnezzar entered Jerusalem and entered the temple because there's no carved image of God. The Israelites didn't have a, an image of God there. So instead, Nebuchadnezzar took a lot of the utensils and furniture and things that were in the temple in Jerusalem. We learn about that. The first raid in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel mentions the things Nebuchadnezzar took back. The person that wrote 2 Kings describes it in 2 Kings 24, 13. And then the third time the Jews were taken back to Babylon, Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezra all describe some of the things that were taken to Babylon. So now Cyrus conquers Babylon and he's got access to all these things and he wants them to go back to Jerusalem, back to Judah with the people that they belong with. And we read here that they were given through a man named Mithredath, who was a treasurer, and he counted them out before a person named Shezbazer, called the Prince of Judah. Shezbazer was in charge of transporting these items back to Jerusalem. Now, next week, we're going to meet a man that's very well known from the book of Ezra named Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel shows up. He's mentioned 25 times in the Bible. This man, Shezbazer, is only mentioned four times in the Bible, only in the book of Ezra. And sometimes we have to kind of figure out, are these two different guys or the same man? Shezbazer was appointed governor of Judah, and it's said by Ezra that Shezbazer laid the foundation of the temple. 
Zerubbabel also is told to us as the man that laid the foundation of the temple. So it could be one man with a, a Babylonian name and a Jewish name. That's what some people believe. Or it could be two different men. Shezbazer was kind of the politically appointed leader, while Zerubbabel was the practical people-focused leader doing the work. So we go from the treasurer there in verses 7 and 8 and learn about this treasure that they take back. Verses 9, 10, and 11 read, Now this was their number, 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of a second kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. Shezbazer brought them all up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now Ezra wrote this book that we're reading, trying to tell the history for Jew, Jews reading it later on, how they came back to the land and how the temple was rebuilt. Imagine me reading this as a Jew, maybe decades later, of this inventory of these things. If God cares enough about all these little things, how much more does he probably care for his people? to keep track of them and care for them. Now you might have noticed, those of you that like math or who are better at math than I am probably, the items listed don't quite add up to 5,400. So what Ezra is probably doing here, there could be two options. Either he's only listing the bigger items or the more expensive, tangible items, and then there's another list that he doesn't list. That's how he gets to the total, or maybe there's been a line of text that dropped out somewhere in history. So we've seen from this first chapter of Ezra that doing God's will can be difficult. Doing God's will requires giving, but doing God's will might require governmental support. If these people are going to return to the land as God wants them to, they need the government's support in order to do it. See, when God promises certain things, he supplies the means by which those things can occur. And here he uses a pagan leader and a government to support that effort for these people. When I was in seminary, there were three friends that I kind of got to know a little bit over time, and they all had come out of the Air Force. Two of them were pilots, and one was a mechanic that worked on, the chief mechanic that worked on an airplane. And these guys all had college degrees already. One of them, he had a master's degree in math. And I asked Sam, I said, Sam, why did you get a master's degree in math? He said, oh, I had some free time and I was bored. <laughs> so that gives you kind of, these were smart guys that I got to spend a little time with. And all three of them had spent more than 20 years in the Air Force. And they were now going to seminary because they sensed God's call in their lives to do ministry. And as I got to know them better, I learned that they were using money the government provided for them. If you're in the military a length of time, they will provide money for you to go to school and pay for it. And then I learned not only did the school, did the military pay for their schooling, but the military paid them money to live on while they went to school. All three of those guys now are in full-time ministry. One pastors a large church. Another guy started a counseling ministry, and another one lives in his trailer, and he travels around to different Christian camps and just does ministry that way. It's kind of neat how 
those guys got to have the government support them and they're called a Christian ministry. What they sensed God calling them to do was supported by the government to help them do that. And that's something that we experience too, even as part of a local church. When we give to church, the government provides us a tax benefit on that. See, for us as Christians, there are things the government gives us that supports us. Free speech and the ability to say what we believe and talk about it. There's no income tax on churches for their income, no corporate tax. We do pay taxes on lots of other things, but at least the donations we don't pay taxes on. And we get the freedom to assemble and gather and worship and to decide who gets to be a member of our church and who doesn't. Those are all things that the government supports us in doing. And so it's our job to, to keep those things and to fight to keep those things. There are certain things we can only do if we have governmental support for it. So as we've spent a little time reading this book from Ezra, written 2,500 years ago, I hope we're starting to see some of these ways of their faith in the Old Testament translate to the ways of faith for us living today. Many of the things that are in front of us are the same things in front of those Israelites 2,500 years ago. Right? And we got to face those issues. Doing God's will might be difficult. It might not always be an open door that's easy to enter. But doing God's will might be like walking uphill. Doing God's will requires giving with our, our money towards the church to do God's work. And doing God's will might require the government to support and that's hard because we just want to do it on our own. We don't want anybody else to help us. But it's important for us to remember, and I'll leave us with this, that God who guided the Israelites is still in charge of the events today. Whatever that event might look for, like for you or for me, he's still in charge. What he promises, he supplies. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these encouraging words, how you didn't forget your people in a foreign land, in a, in a different country, even a different people that had never been to the land you had promised their ancestors. Thank you for, for not giving up on your people, for remembering your people. And we pray that you would remember us and that you would guide us in similar ways, even if we have done things that don't please you, that you are there ready to welcome us back. I pray for our church that you would help us to know and, and realize your will sometimes might be difficult. It might require things from us we don't normally do. But you supply what we need for the promises you've provided. I pray for our church that we would be faithful to you and that we would love you, that we would show graciousness and kindness to others and invite them to join in this relationship that we enjoy with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll invite you to, if you're able, to stand. And then after the benediction, we'll uh, celebrate birthdays and anniversaries. And then uh, transition to the fellowship hall for some food. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen.